Welcome back to the Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Ken Ewens Clark. Ken is a senior scientific programmer at the University of Arizona. He has spent the better part of his 23 years as a software developer working in bioinformatics. He has a BA in English Lit Music and a master's in biosystems engineering and is the author of Tiny Python Projects from Manning Publications. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Ben. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, this is going to be a blast. Um, so let me just, I, I get accused with these. Sometimes my icebreakers aren't really icebreakers, but I'm just going to go for it here. Uh, how did the secret reveal itself to you that learning tiny Python projects can actually train us for building projects at scale? Well, it, really, it, it all came out of teaching at the university level. Um, first off, it, it's something that I kind of thought I might enjoy. Um, and I, I think I've found that it's kind of a passion of mine. I really enjoy helping people learn to program. I especially enjoy helping non-computer scientists learn how to program. I enjoy working with people who just need to know how to make a program work. Mm. And, so, and then it came to be like, well, how, how can I effectively help them learn this? And um, I, I've worked at the command line for 20 years. I think the Unix command line is one of the best interfaces ever created for uh, dealing with data. I like that I can create a program that sticks in the middle of some larger pipeline of, of you know, some other people wrote a program and there's this other program over here and I need to write the thing that bridges it in the middle. So from the beginning, I was focused on how do I teach people to write programs that work? And so initially I thought, oh, I'll just have them write some stuff and then I'll look at it and I'll run the, I'll run the programs and I'll see how that works. And even with a class of 20 people or actually in the beginning, maybe 12 people, that just doesn't scale at all. I, I just did not have time. And I had written tests before and I thought, you know what, this will go a lot easier if I just simply write tests. And uh, it turned out to be a really effective way for the students to interact with the homework exercises as well because um, they just simply knew when the program worked. Um, and I wasn't really, I didn't have the idea that, oh, we should use test-driven development as a pedagogical tool. But it just worked out. Every year that I kept doing this and making it better, the, the students seemed to respond very, very positively. Because at first, yes, you start off failing every single test, but then you pass one then you pass two, then you pass three. And suddenly, you know, they're passing all six tests for their homework. And you literally see them go, yes. And they get really excited. And, yeah. and these are people who've never written a program before in their life. And you're like, wow, this works. This is actually kind of a motivational thing. You've kind of turned it into a game. There's this goal. And, and, it's, and it's an achievable goal. And when they have achieved it, that's it. There's no guesswork. Their homework is done. They can turn it in. Um, and it, is, it has just snowballed over, I guess I've been doing this for about four years now. And just every year, it seems to get better. Um, so last year, I, at the end of the class, I took the best material that I had. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write this into a book. And I'm going to see if I can get it published. And I spent just months and months working on this and working out the bugs. And I'm using it again right now, this spring, and teaching. And the class has never gone so well. First off, I'm actually prepared. Um, but the other thing is that I've really thought about the pacing and how I'm introducing the material. And I think that this is just a really effective way to learn. Hmm. 
Yeah, I noticed that because uh, right now the book is a meep, so you can go and preview it right now. And I, that's exactly how you kick off the book. It's like testing. And I thought that was so cool. This is, I think, the crucial problem is that testing is usually left to be some sort of a advanced topic. Like we'll get to that. You'll learn that when you get to industry or we'll cover that in the fifth or sixth Python book that you cover. Mm. I think completely the wrong way to approach it. We should, mm. be te- we should be teaching testing to beginners. This is one of the most effective ways that we come up with in what, 40, 50 years of writing software. This is a really effective way to write software. And there's no reason not to write it this way. And honestly, this is the way I write my software. I sit down to write a function. First thing I do, I write a test for that function. I think, okay, if I give this function the empty string, what should it return? If I give this something you know, with one character, what should it return? Um, you teach that to people. And I think it, it just turns the, the, the idea around. Like you're teaching them contracting. The, you know, the contract, like if I give you this, I get this back. And then they think about how they will interact with the function. And then they go write the function that satisfies those tests. And I hmm. hope that when they leave my class, they'll continue to do that with their own software. Yeah. It's like uh, gamifying it. Like, like you had mentioned earlier, kind of uh, like if you've never been exposed to this sort of thing, it can be addicting very quickly. So uh, what better way to jump in than write some tests? That's cool. Right. Um, what is your secret to taking on monumental tasks usually reserved for small armies of programmers? Um, well, uh, I, I have to say between the other software developer and, and myself, there's just two of us in our group, full-time okay. professional software developers. We work for Dr. Bonnie Hurwitz. Um, and we have developed a, a few really very nice interfaces. One of which is iMicrobe.us. That was actually the subject of my master's thesis. Um, and then there's another project that we've written called planetmicrobe.org. Um, and these are you know, academic projects that are based on um, analyzing metagenomic data. Um, we're trying to integrate all these data sets. And I honestly feel like we have um, created tools and we have created software that would probably take less experienced developers, maybe four or five people to develop in probably twice as much time. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say that we, I, while I use Python quite a bit for scripting uh, opportunities and maybe for small applications, we generally tend to use um, uh, different languages when we're working on projects like that. For instance, all of our web interfaces are built with Elm, which is a purely functional programming language. It's basically a dialect of Haskell and it compiles to JavaScript, which hmm. is a, a really weird thing to kind of get your head around. But, you know, people are writing in TypeScript rather than JavaScript and other higher level languages. And soon we'll all be writing uh, in whatever language we want and compiling to WebAssembly. So uh, hmm. a, a compiler like the Elm compiler has made our lives so much easier. Um, when I'm writing apps that need to run on like a high performance computer and they really must work and they maybe span into hundreds or thousands of lines, I generally use Rust. I find that the compiler is really amazing. So, so I try to bring those ideas back to Python when I'm writing. I've definitely embraced uh, type hints. Um, I think that that's been a huge boon for the, uh, for the language. And then tools like MyPy and PyLint uh, really help me to, to write uh, really effective Python. So 
but I think that you should always choose the right tool for whatever thing that you're trying to solve. And mm. in, in our lab, we work with half a dozen languages, at least, depending on the tasks that we need to work on. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. And it's almost like um, it takes some expertise to kind of get to that point. Or, or would you expect like a, a complete newcomer to really have the intuition to use the right tool for the job? Like, how do you get that intuition? That's no, it, it's uh, enormously difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the, you know, these, these books, like become a developer in 24 days, it's, it's <laughs> become a developer in 24 years. Uh, yeah. There's really just no way around it. The, the, the body of knowledge that you need to learn is staggering. Um, I've spent so long just trying to learn the biology that's involved in my job that is, is, is staggering. And then to throw into that the computer science that I, I try to, to teach myself as well. Um, hmm. It's really common in academia, uh, R, to, to use R for uh, statistical analysis. Uh, and so in, in our field, that would be one that you would just kind of be assumed that you would, you would at least have a familiarity with R. Most people really use Python as their basic scripting language. Mm -hmm. um, these other languages that I mentioned, like Elm, Haskell, um, and Rust, uh, very few people in academia are using those languages. They're, they're fairly cutting edge. Um, but the way that I try to teach Python, I'm trying not to teach Python just Python. I'm trying to teach ideas that you can use in any language. Any mm. language has, well, I mean, pretty much, I, I can't think of a language except maybe for prologue, uh, but most any language that you would use is going to have a list. What can you do with the list? How can you put things onto the end of a list? How can you reverse a list? How can you take part of a list out of it? Um, you're going to need that in any language that you, that you approach. And I'm not sure how much you've been able to get into the, the MEEP, uh, but I pretty much very, very quickly try to introduce purely functional ideas. I introduced MAP very early on. Again, I think it's a, it's a very powerful idea that need not be saved until someone's an expert level programmer. Hmm. Try to show here's how you do a for loop. Here's how you can make a very short for loop using a list comprehension. It's a very short leap from a list comprehension to a MAP. So there's no reason not to show that to a beginner. They're gonna to need to see it many, many times before it makes sense. But I think by the end of the book, they'll be comfortable with using MAP. And if they're comfortable with that, they'll also be uh, much more comfortable using those same ideas in R, which oddly enough considers itself a functional programming language. And then they'll be able to go into languages like Haskell and, and, and uh, Rust eventually. Yeah. I Specifically with the list comprehensions, I remember the first time I was introduced to them, it was definitely a kind of a weird concept, but I, I actually find myself like intuitively just going to them now. So yeah, let's, let's get acquainted with these powerful tools, put them in practice and uh, yeah, let's, let's not wait till the fifth book or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I, in the pre-interview, you had uh, mentioned a story. I love the story about how you got a degree in English. You were given a shot to write technical documentation for software. And you did such a bang up job that you were granted the opportunity to get trained on a language so you could support the product. Right. So I wanted to know what was your biggest takeaway from that experience? That is, that is, that is basically the, the moment that I was born really the, the job before that I had done the things I had played around with like some, some uh, desktop publishing software. I had taught myself HTML. I was using 
This was back in Windows 3.1. So I was using Notepad and I think Putty to um, write HTML and you know, learned how to use an FTP and get those files over there and made the company website. And I played around with a little bit with Microsoft Access Database. So I, I, I had shown the, the ability to teach myself. Um, and and the, the person who hired me for that second job, his name was Eric Thorson, and I was very fortunate in that he also had an English degree, and he also had studied music. He also had taught himself programming, and he also had basically uh, was supporting himself by selling uh, a couple programs that he had written in Microsoft uh, Access and also Visual Basic. Hmm. And he just took a chance on me. You know, I showed a lot of ambition. I did. I did a fine job on the technical documentation and, and he's like, well, you know, do you want to learn Visual Basic and support the program? And I was like, yes, what do I need to do? Um, and so he gave me some, some documentation and, and he gave me, and I just went home and I installed Visual VB and I taught myself. I sat there on the weekends and uh, I remember that one of the first programs I wrote, a little window popped up and you press the button. And when you press the button, a little dialogue box would pop up and it would say, do the safety dance. And I was like, Yay, I did it. Um, uh, it, was, it was very exciting to learn how to program. Um, not the least of which because uh, I wasn't making much money before that. I was, you know, just working just kind of stupid office jobs, answering the phone and fulfilling orders. And I knew that this was my ticket out of a, you know, life of menial, boring tasks. Like I, mm -hmm. could, I could do this. Um, so I, I think one of the things that I would definitely take away from that is we need to train people. We need to give people a shot. Uh, if somebody hadn't, you know, if Eric hadn't given me a shot, I, I would have eventually learned it. I would have picked it up somehow, maybe through a different job, but, but he did give me a shot and he mm -hmm. did work with me and he sat there beside me and explained things to me. And that made all the difference. Um, actually, you know, I don't think I've ever thought about it in that way until you asked, but yeah, if somebody hadn't taken a chance on me and really helped train me, it would have taken me longer to get where I was going. Uh, so yeah. I, it's one of my favorite things to do is to help people learn. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I, it just, it stuck out. I really enjoyed reading the, the pre-interview, but man, that, uh, that story really stuck out. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah. When did you decide that your life's calling would be to advance scientific research while simultaneously democratizing computing? Well, uh, I did not know what bioinformatics was. It was a total accident that I, um, so it's, it's always fun when people are like, oh, you know, what, do you, what did you study? Well, music and English, <laughs> what do you do now? Computer science and biology. And they're like, oh, how did you do that? Well, first I was like, I, I said, well, I need to learn how to program. I mean, I, I've got a, this is cool. I like programming. And my, my first several jobs were just basic industry jobs. Mm -hmm. um, bouncing around, I was living in Cincinnati when I first learned and I was working for like kind of blue chip, uh, uh, companies there, very staid and uh, conservative. Then I got to move to Boston. I got to work for Boston.com, which was the Boston Globe's internet site uh, at the time. And that was a little more cutting edge. We were using the LAMP stack. This was in a uh, Linux Apache MySQL Perl. This was in 1999 when I joined them and uh, learned so much there. Um, and then when I left that job, I was uh, deep into Perl because Perl ruled the 90s in web development. Actually, I should back up and say that, you know, my first few jobs were uh, Windows desktop development, um, working in like Delphi and uh, you ever heard of Delphi? Borderline Delphi? I've heard Object of it. Delphi. 
Yeah, it was back in the day and, and you know, working in uh, Visual Basic and things like that. And then around 1998, I was like, I don't like this. This is mm. not really fun. Um, this internet thing is going to take off and I want to be in the internet space. Uh, so I got a job that was doing um, ASP, Active Server Pages, Microsoft, SQL Server, and IIS, Internet Information Server. And uh, it was technically doing the internet, but I hated it. I just hated it. Hmm. Uh, and then I discovered my uh, ISP in Cincinnati had a shell account. Um, and so I started um, secretly, maybe I shouldn't say this on the air, but during work hours, I would shell over, I would tell net over to my ISP and I taught myself the command line and BI and I started learning Perl and I started writing CGI scripts. And, um, hmm. and so that carried on when I went to, to boston.com and I got much, much better at Perl. And then when I was leaving that job, I just wanted to keep working in Perl. I thought it was just a fantastic language. Um, and I happened to, we were using Mod Perl at the time, which is a way of embedding a, a, um, a constantly running Perl interpreter inside the Apache uh, process. So it does so that you didn't have a startup penalty every time you ran your Perl scripts. Hmm. And so that was called Mod Perl because it was this module that would install into Apache. And um, I was on the Mod Perl mailing list and Lincoln Stein was on the Mod Perl mailing list because he and Doug McEachern wrote the book, literally the O'Reilly book on Mod Perl. And um, I had heard of Lincoln because he had written books such as how to build and maintain a website, like in the early nineties. And then he wrote the, the Mod Perl book and some other Perl books. And so I knew who he was. He was a very uh, prominent Perl hacker, tons of modules. He wrote the CGI.PM module, which was core to Perl at the time. So it was a big deal. Hmm. Um, and he said in his, I, saw, I happened to see, he wrote into the Mod Perl list and said, uh, now hiring postdocs and programmers into my lap. Well, I didn't know what a post was but I knew I was a programmer I knew he was a really top-notch Perl guy and I was like so I wrote him I said I'd love to work for you I don't know what you do but you seem like a cool dude um, I said but the thing is is I'm currently about to move back to Texas uh, from from Boston and so would you consider hiring me remotely and uh, he did and so I worked for Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory for 13 years um, remotely the entire time and when I got involved, I didn't know what Lincoln did, but it turned out he was an MD PhD in like human pathology. And he went on to study uh, C. elegans, which is a tiny, tiny little microscopic worm, a nematode. And then he got into these human uh, health projects. And then I worked for 13 years on a plant genomics database. And I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, so I just went to work there. And one of the first things he asked me to do was to he asked me to do something that just seemed absolutely impossible. I couldn't believe what he was asking me to do. Uh, but I sat down and I did it. Um, and then uh, after a couple years of working there, I was like, you know what, this is really cool. I'm working on really interesting projects. I'm working on software that is in maybe some small way making the world a slightly better place. I'm helping scientists. I get to do it by working from home in my pajamas. So I like this. I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, and that's, you know, it's kind of just a series of accidents and uh, 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 unplanned events that led me to where I am now. Yeah, the I don't know if I have enough data yet to uh, call it a trend, but kind of what I'm hearing here is there's like these little moments in time that completely changed the trajectory of your life. And uh, I just kind of wonder, like, you know, is that unique to you or 
is that available to everyone? We just need to have our eyes open and kind of be prepared or like, what's your insight on that? Did you just get lucky or, you know, can other people experience this? No. Uh, well, absolutely. There's luck. Clearly mm-hmm. there luck plays a role. Um, there are events that good things that happened to me in my life that were beyond my control. And there were also bad things that have happened. Uh, mm-hmm. But luck combined with preparedness and the willingness to work extremely hard, uh, I think is what will lead to success. Um, Cause good and bad things will happen to people. Um, uh, I did, I, I mentioned in my pre-interview um, that I had a massive accident three years mm-hmm. ago um, that left me with just a, a horrible concussion. Um, the first year after that, I just could barely program and work. But um, between uh, having a good job and a really good support network and working really, really, really hard, uh, I got over it um, and finished my master's in the meantime. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, there's a, are you familiar with Aaron Schwartz? Um, he, oh, he's the, is he the Reddit guy? Uh, he, I think he may have had something to do with Reddit. I can't remember his whole history, but he basically, I think he was working at MIT. Yeah. This is the, the journal, like he tried to open source a bunch of journals and yes. got in trouble and ended up and uh, he was, suicide, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He was harassed by the FBI and he finally committed suicide. And there's a, a link. I could probably look it up real quick, but he, he says something to the effect of read widely just be open-minded, explore, be curious. Hmm. A lot of what people think of as, as intelligence is simply just a willingness to be open to new experiences. Um, so that's hmm. what I would say um, is that definitely amazing things have happened to me. Just like getting hired by Lincoln was life-changing mm-hmm. um, because I would have probably just continued working in industry and there's nothing wrong with working in industry, but it, I think that I'm a naturally academic and bookish person. Uh, I'm very much drawn. I, I really wanted to get a PhD. I have wanted to get a PhD for a long time. I realize now I'm, I will not get a PhD. It's not, it's not in the cards for me, but I think this is the life that was, uh, I was intended for. Mm. And uh, getting, to, uh, getting into bioinformatics and being able to work in basically academic and research institutions has, has been just the right fit for me. Um, and I think that, yeah, I don't know, it's, it is luck, but it's also just, um, I really don't want to discount and I don't want to like talk myself up, but I have really worked my ass off over the years. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, that, that's really all I can say about that, I guess. Yeah. Respect. That's, that's awesome. I mean, you, you uh, put yourself in a position where when the doors open, you just knew how to handle it. And that's, you know, that's, that's just how it is. And everyone can put themselves in those situations if they choose is kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. And I read a great quote for young developers and it's something like, you know, all the developers that you see out there were unprepared to write the software programs that they did until they wrote them. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like that when Lincoln hired me, he, the first thing he wanted me to write was a uh, visualization software so that we could see whole genomes uh, whole chromosome side by side, vertically aligned with all these lines between them showing uh, elements of like transposition and things that were similar between them. And he's describing all this to me and I'm thinking, there's no way I could write this. 
but he could. I mean, he's he just doesn't have the time. But so mm-hmm. that's why he's hiring me. And so I know it can be done, but I have no idea where to even start. And and this was well before like SVG libraries and all kind of stuff. I mean, I was lo- using LiveGD and I had to like figure out where to put every single pixel. And I had to draw an image and layer all these pixels on top of each other to create these image maps underneath mm-hmm. so you could click on them. And it was, it was a monumental task. Um, and I could have just said, nope, I, I'm sorry, that's just, I can't do that. But I didn't. I just beat my head against it for, you know, two or three years. It's not, I mean, I, I worked on that full time for two or three years. I think I had a minimal viable product probably within a year. But it was hard. It was an extremely difficult first year to get that to work. Yeah. Wow. That's a cool story. I, I have, that, that's actually a good seg- segue into the next part here. So as far as things being really hard, uh, what do you recommend that doesn't take much effort to be an effective scientific programmer that kind of solves the 80% of the challenge of studying biological data? Um, ah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I have been surprised. So I, I would love to be solving cancer or something huge. Um, and I'm really surprised how often um, somebody's project can be moved forward with a small Python script or sometimes even a small shell script. Hmm. Um, I, I really think that uh, there was a time when biology was very, very small data sets that would easily fit into Excel spreadsheets. And a lot of people still use Excel spreadsheets, but we're, we're just so far beyond that now with, with data sets that have millions to billions of records. Uh, there really is no way to get around learning basic programming skills. Um, and, and it could be with R. It's a pretty capable language, maybe not for data, big data analysis, but certainly for data visualization and seeing trends and, and using statistics. Um, but like, especially in Python, learning how to use modules, like even the CSV module, right? Just learning how to, to parse a CSV file effectively. That can be really, uh, really, really useful. Uh, and then moving into to things like using pandas or um, maybe the Apache Arrow project when that comes out, that'll be really interesting. So um, I'm not, am I answering this question well enough? Yeah, I think so. I was, I was kind of, um, I, I always struggle with like a way to word this, but I'm kind of just looking for like the Pareto principle in action. You've got, you know, 20 plus years of experience. What are people maybe like overlooking or taking for granted that they could, you know, pick up? And it would send them well on their way. And it sounds like from, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's kind of like, you know, fundamentals of programming. If you're getting into data science, you know, consider, uh, you know, how to um, consume a CSV and how to start working, working with that data. You know, one of the things that um, I honestly, and, and I said this near the beginning, I think the Unix command line is mm, okay. incredible programming interface. And so, you know, half of our, at least always half of our students in our class are coming uh, with the Windows laptops. And and we we expect our students to bring their own laptops to class because we set up their development environments on their laptops so they always have it with them. And so that when they leave class, they will will still be able to continue programming. When Mm -hmm. we first started with the class, we actually so that we would have a homogenous environment, we actually got them all onto our university HPC and we were teaching them the command line. So we, we would have to spend the first couple of weeks just 
teaching them how to CD to their, you know, to their, you know, into different directories and Maker, and then using Git to pull down the, the the repository and stuff. And so it was a little painful, but it it's also those basic command line skills are really really important. Um, we don't really spend time like that right now in the class. We help the Windows users set up Windows subsystem for Linux, so mm -hmm. they have a command line. And WSL is awesome. That really, totally changed my game. Yeah, it's really done done wonders. Um, mm -hmm. Once that really came along, then we could yeah we could just use Windows laptops natively um, because I make my students learn how to write command line programs that process command line arguments and run from the command line and are tested at the command line. I don't teach Jupyter Notebooks. Uh, I think they are fantastic. I think that there's amazing stuff that you can do with notebooks, but I think that it's too easy to run things out of order and to not think of the program running from top to bottom. I think, mm -hmm. but, and also it's much, much easier to test command line programs. But even, it, even apart from learning how to write a command line program, learning how to just use all the commands that are already there in Unix and learning how to use pipes. You know, so learning that you can head a file, pipe it into awk, take out one column, pipe that into sed, remove some bits of data that you don't want, redirect that into a file. You can do an amazing amount of data science with the existing tools that we have, cut, hmm. off, sed, grep, Perl one-liners. Um, it, it's all there. A lot of times, like I said, a, a project can be moved forward just with a simple shell script. Then when that doesn't do enough or it needs, you know, it's more than say 10 lines, I'll go write a Python script. Then when the Python script grows beyond say three or 400 lines, I'll move to Rust. And then, so that, that's how I usually progress. But I'm amazed at how much can be done just with the command line. And I think that that is, um, that, that is the place everyone should start. Even Windows users, they should install Windows Subsystem for Linux and learn what those tools are about. That's, that's great. I, uh, I usually figure out a way to ask this question in some sort of context for the, for the guest on the show in their, in their uh, area of expertise. And, but I've never heard an answer like that before. So thank you for sharing. I'm, I'm about 45 interviews deep and I'm just amazed at the variety of ways you can answer these questions. So thank you for that. Cool. Uh, now I want to invert that a little bit. What is overly difficult for a newcomer that should be avoided in your opinion when starting out with working with these uh, biological data sets or, uh, or just becoming a scientific programmer? You can kind of take whatever angle you want on that. Well, programming languages, I, I you know, I, I was just listening to, uh, I want to get her name right, Felina, I think her name is, uh, she's Dutch. Um, she gave this, this, this talk about um, teaching people how to, how to program. And, uh, and she starts off with this, 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 this basic refrain amongst programmers, which is everyone should learn how to program, right? And so I've been programming for a long time. I've tried to convert so many of my friends into being programmers because I think it's so much fun. It's also uh, stable and lucrative. Hey, that's, that's great too. Um, but uh, so, so I'm gonna answer from the standpoint of assuming that everyone needs to learn how to program, Programming languages are really difficult to learn. Um, and even with Python, people say, you know, Python is, is it doesn't use braces and it doesn't use uh, semicolons and it reads like English. And 
And let me tell you, I still see some really, really terrible Python uh, and stuff that um, is just very poorly engineered, very, very difficult to read, um, and, and, and just overly, overly complex. Um, but so there's nothing about the language, any language that I've encountered yet, that really makes it truly uh, easy to learn how to program. And, and in this talk, Baylina actually talks about she, uh, her, her initial PhD project was to create some domain-specific language for people in finance to do mm. their work. So she went and interned at a finance company and she came out and she said, they already are doing it, they're using Excel. And they're using it really, really well. And in fact, she went on to do all this, this PhD research on the fact that Excel spreadsheets, spreadsheets in general, are an extremely effective programming environment. They're purely functional. She, can, she actually implemented monads and, an, and a Turing machine inside uh, uh, spreadsheets. And she showed that this is a really effective way for people to get their work done. And so I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're built around a limited uh, questions that you're trying to answer, you know, stuff that fits into columns and rows probably is mostly numerical. Um, but it, it is a, actually a tremendously useful tool. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's useful because people use it. And I think right. that we, we haven't found a way to make pro generic programming languages that accessible. She said, you know, to her, you know, maybe I should just say, she should just go watch her, her keynote that she just gave at the R Studio Comp. But, you know, she, she, does, she, she, she says that people don't just accidentally discover C++ or something like that. Mm -hmm. They don't just accidentally create programs in some other language the way they seem to do in Excel. And so um, I, I don't have an answer for this. I, I, uh, I'm a, definitely a student of programming languages. I, I love learning new ones. I love building. I, I will, you know, I, I, came, I came from Perl for so long that I did Perl. Now I do a lot of Python. And then, so I'll write a program in Python, then I'll immediately go try to write it in Rust. And then I'll try to write it in Haskell. And then I'll try to write it in something else. Uh, I think it's fascinating to, to, to compare them, but none of them is easy. And so, you know, and I'm sitting here trying to, when, the way that I teach Python is with a lot of structure, a lot of explicit direction. I give the students a template for them to start each program. Because I think the worst thing to do is to ask a beginner to open up a blank screen and start typing. Hmm. I think it's much easier to give them a working program that has examples of how the program should work, and then they modify that. Um, so that's what I've been trying to do to make it easier for people to learn how to program and also give them copious examples. Like, here's a program that takes one positional argument. Here's a program that takes two positional arguments. Here's a program that takes one or more positional argument, you know, so you just, and just beat them over the head with examples. Um, and, uh, and then make it so that they realize I'm giving you this so you can copy and paste this into your own programs. Right. Um, and I don't know what that looks like to create a, a, an environment there where it's easier for people to learn how to program. I don't think it's scratch. You know, I actually saw something just yesterday, something like, Something that looked like Scratch. Have you seen Scratch for teaching children? Is, is that the graphical? It's yeah. almost like like visual Legos or something. Yeah, it's like it'll have like this thing that looks like a C, and you drag it over from the palette, and then that's like a loop, and then you can stick directions inside of it and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, 
and they were showing this. It was, I swear it was a web interface. And then they were like, okay, here's what it looks like compiled to JavaScript. And here's what it looks like compiled to Rust. And here, and I was like, wow, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if that's the way to go. Uh, but I think that programming languages in general have a long way to go before they're really, for, the, for most people, that most people could just pick them up and use them and write correct programs that actually work. Hmm. Um, Python, there's a lot going for it, but we still have to remember it was, it was started what, in like 1990, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's like 30 years ago. So there's a lot that we've learned in 30 years about programming languages. And so I'll be interested to see what the next one is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, so I want to kind of dive back into something you had mentioned uh, previously. And that was kind of like, how do you deal with like pushing yourself beyond the limits? Like, uh, like you're working on this project and you're like, holy cow, I'm, this guy's asking me to do this thing I've never like contemplated before. So I was curious, what kind of technique does one need to develop to solve problems kind of beyond the scope of what they might've limited themselves to before? Well, when I started with Lincoln's lab and uh, the first thing I had to do was at least understand basic biology. And um, the last biology class I had taken was in high school and I actually dropped it because I hated it so much. Uh, and I had strictly avoided uh, biology. And so I first off had to just open my brain up to learning biology again. And mm. I'd always told myself that I hated it. I thought it was stupid. Um, and it's not, it's really amazing and beautiful. So I had to overcome that, my, my bias against it. And then I just had to um, start over. You know, you just, you, you feel like, I remember actually Eric, the guy who taught me to program, uh, he, he was talking about how, you know, when you're a kid, you're in middle school, you're first grader, and everybody beats up on you on the playground, because you're the little kid. But then, you know, you, you graduate from that to middle school. And then you're the low kid on this totem pole again. And then you're the high kid. And then you graduate from that and you go to high school. And then you're the low kid. And then you get to be a senior and you're a high kid. And then you go to college and you go back again. And then when you're done with college, he's like, then you're done. You don't have to go back to being, you know, that. You can just kind of keep going up and up. And, but honestly, there's been so many times where I felt like, okay, I'm just back to the beginning now. You know, like, okay, I, if I'm going to work in biology, I'm going to have to admit that I know nothing about this field and I'm just going to, have to start reading, talking, going to lectures, uh, taking a bunch of notes and just working really hard at this. Um, hmm. I'm sorry. What was the question again? Yeah. So I was just like pushing yourself beyond like the limiting beliefs. And I, I think you kind of answered it. Although I am curious about, it seemed like you had a lot of clarity on your goals. Like, I don't think it almost be, like, like, unless you're like a masochist, like, why would you do something that's just like, you know, you hated? So somehow, somewhere down the line, you had this clarity. You're like, this is where I'm going with my life. This is an amazing opportunity. I'll do whatever it takes. And, and then you put in the hard work. That's kind of what I'm hearing as far as like pushing through these limiting. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, I would never do that for something I didn't believe in. You mm -hmm. know, I'm not going to go to work for a company that has a goal or any sort of organization that has a goal that doesn't, I don't personally believe in. Um, mm -hmm. 
Um, and I've been fortunate to be able to work in academia and, and research because, you know, these ideas can be misused uh, for sure. Um, but overall, I think that I've been able to work towards things that in the net are, are positive for society. Um, I think that, and I, and I talked about this, I thought it was interesting. One of your questions was like, like what's a, what's something that's non-negotiable for you every day. And, yes. and, I, and I talked about my self care. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that I want to say I've worked very hard over these years, but I don't work 80, hundred hour weeks. Um, sometimes I might put in a 10 or 12 hour day, but I, you know, I turn it off at night. I go home and I see my wife and kids. Um, I sit by the fire and I try to, you know, drink a cup of tea every day. I try to, I ride my bike to work. I love that. I try to go for runs. I go for bicycle rides. Um, I think it's very important when you're working very hard to take a break, um, to go take a walk, take a run, uh, have lunch with your colleagues. Uh, we do that every day here at the university. We, we, we take breaks, we take some time to just talk. Um, I think that those, those elements are very important. And I think that's what allows you to be able to work very hard is when you know that you have those breaks. Um, and there's, I think it's Rich Hickey is his name. I think he's the creator of a, I want to say closure, uh, the closure language. Okay. Um, you know, so we, we, we've talked a little bit about here about test-driven development, and he talks about hammock-driven development. I um, mm. think it's very important to go lay in the hammock and, and think about your problem. Um, I love take it. Take a nap. Uh, you know, that's good for you. Uh, so work hard, but, you know, take care of yourself too and be a person and be a whole person. Don't just be a computer person. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So, so maybe the nugget, I mean, at least the nugget that I'm, I'm getting out of this is, uh, you know, if you're ever feeling like you're kind of not progressing or you're kind of hit a, you're having groundhog day or something like that, like really maybe don't um, focus on the skills, kind of look at maybe, you know, the other things in life that kind of make like a holistic, wonderful experience, uh, health, uh, your relationships, these sort of things. And I think you had mentioned something along the lines of uh, personal relationships being like a huge uh, factor um, in, in uh, kind of your strategy, I guess, to working your way up the ladder. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've been in some like maybe boring uh, corporate environments or teams. I've never been, I wouldn't say in like a toxic place. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I, I think that I've always just avoided them. Um, but if I found myself in one, the, the first thing I would do would be to leave. Uh, I would not want to be in any sort of abusive relationship with a boss or be in a company that, you know, I felt like didn't treat its employees well. Um, I think that you can only grow in a positive environment. Um, and I think that there's a lot of really great places to work that probably unfortunately don't pay as well. Uh, I love working with nonprofits. Um, I love working with uh, the people in nonprofits and in academia, people who are not necessarily driven by money. Um, I actually was joking with, uh, with someone that I was being interviewed for this profitable Python. And, you know, because most of the code I've written in my life, I've actually given away for free. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, uh, yeah, you can go to GitHub and get like most everything that I have. Um, and that's fine with me. Um, so I think that the, the biggest thing that I would tell people is, is, is to find good mentors. I would be 
nowhere without the people who mentored me along the way. Hmm. Um, especially, it was especially rich during the, I think I worked at boston.com for about a year and a half or maybe two. And I had these just sage like programmers that I would take my code to and I would say, I know this code sucks. Will you please tell me how to make it better? And they would, and we would have code reviews and we would have lunches together. And I learned so much. And, and one of the things that I was so glad that I learned during my time there was I got some basic sysadmin skills too that have made me so much more self-sufficient and able to, to get my work done because I have at least a basic understanding of how to configure a Unix machine and bring up a web server and install a database and things like that. So, um, I, I, again, it just goes back to just absorb everything, right? Just be open to whatever you can learn. But especially it's, the, it's those people who are going to make a difference, people who train you and give you those opportunities. And then one day you'll be that person who can do that for others. And, mm -hmm. you know, after, I guess I'm a senior scientific, you know, I guess I'm a senior developer now with some 20 years of experience. I, I think I'm probably mid career. I think I've got at best 15 or 20 years left in me. And so now it's my turn to give back. Um, I think it's my Angelou who says, uh, if you, if you learn, uh, no, if, if you learn, teach, if you get give. So, you know, I'm hoping that maybe I'm moving into that era of my life where I can be the mentor to people and help them come along. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you brought that quote up. I was looking at something last night. They they had uh, referenced that in a context of if you want to learn something faster, approach it with that methodology. So I'm wondering your take on, you know, is it possible to accelerate the learning process by by teaching, even though maybe you don't, you're not a 20 year veteran type thing. Absolutely. Okay. And yeah. One sure. of the things I'd love to do in, so uh, during my master's, I did get to take one education class and I wish that I had taken more. I would love okay. to go off and do another master's degree in education because hmm. I really have it figured out. And it's kind of appalling that to be able to teach at the university level, you need basically no background in education itself. Hmm. So, there, there's some amazing educational philosophies out there. And one is having students teach each other. And so, and in programming, we call that pair programming. Um, right. And so, and one of the things, you know, I would literally see my students nodding off like to sleep when I would just lecture um, the whole time. So I don't do that anymore. We spend every class writing the program that's in, you know, whatever chapter. So we're, we're, we're starting on chapter five tomorrow. Uh, and so we're gonna sit down and we're gonna start from scratch and, and they're gonna sit there and work. And they're usually working individually at their own laptops, but they're sitting together in pairs at tables. And so uh, I'll say, you know, well, write this and think about this and what does that do? And then I'll give them a minute and then they'll all start talking to each other and they're, they're talking about their code. And I'll say, well, you know, what do you think this will do? Like, cause they haven't seen Python. They don't know. Like the other day uh, I was talking to them about Booleans and I said, you know, what I was explaining, anding and oring, like true and false, false and false, true mm. or false. And then I said, true plus sign, true. And I said, what's that going to do? And I just like held back. And I was like, well, what do you think it'll do? What do you think it'll do? And just like making them just make my wild guesses. Turns out it, it true plus true. Do you know in Python? It's truthy. 
So it's truthy, but what if you if in the Python REPL you type true plus true, do you know what it'll print? I I I guess I would think it would do true. Is that it will print the number two? <laughs> yeah, that's uh because yeah. because it's actually underneath the, the, the hood, I'm pretty sure true is one and false is zero. Hmm. So true plus false is one. So um, anyway, I think it's great to have people who don't fully understand something, say something, try to teach each other. Uh, like, and and it eventually, so we're only like, I think three weeks into the semester now. So hmm. eventually I will just tell people, okay, you have one keyboard between you, share it and write this code. Um, and they, they'll, so they'll have to talk about it. Like, well, oh, you missed that colon there. Or I think we should write it like this. Uh, mm. That absolutely makes them improve faster. And so uh, I, it's actually Grady Booch. I still follow him on Twitter. And he, uh, he one day he said, I, t I write books to learn. And I have to say, I, I, have, I really only started pro programming Python in earnest of maybe two years ago. And writing this book has made me so much better. Hmm. Trying to learn how to teach it has made me way better than I would have if I had just simply kept programming by myself. Yeah, that's uh, that's great motivation for anyone listening to this. Like that could um, that could be the difference between you know you taking you know half a lifetime or you know a quarter of a lifetime to really get where you want to be is by teaching your way along the way, I guess. And, and I think that um, I, I, I still play music to this day. Uh, I and I play a, half a dozen instruments very poorly, but I, I play them enthusiastically. Um, it's fun. <laughs> and I just like, and my, my wife will roll her eyes because like three years ago, I'm like, I'm going to learn the violin. And she's like, oh my God. And, and I was still terrible. Um, but, you know, I play anyway. But I think that the reason why I have gotten to be always a better programmer is that I, and I say this to my students, if the only programs you write are the ones for class, you'll never get good. Mm -hmm. the only programming, and I'm not saying people should work 40 hours a week and then go home and have another 20 hour side project. But, you know, honestly, if you're not just kind of programming out of curiosity and exploring ideas, I'm not sure how you're growing. Mm. Um, even if I was only programming at work, I would probably look to write programs that they didn't ask me to write. Like right. I would just look around and say, you know, this process over here is not going so well. I wonder if I could find some way to improve that, like create a web interface for some sort of a intake of these samples. Or uh, I noticed that they keep having to do the same manual formatting of these spreadsheets when they're going from this thing. So, you know, figuring out how you can improve what you see around you and not just waiting to be told what to do. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah. And thanks for sharing kind of the, uh, the, the teacher's perspective on that. Cause you kind of get to see the magic work at scale, I guess. Like it's, it's one thing for someone to just have an observation, but you're kind of graced with seeing this happen. Uh, so it makes, it's a little more believable, I guess, when it's, when it's coming from, uh, your perspective. So thanks for sharing that. Sure. Uh, what would be the first tool that you pick up if you were, if you had to like start from scratch? Hmm. Uh, 
how do you mean start like from programming? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So let me, let me clarify. Like if you had to start over tomorrow and, uh, with, uh, but you knew that you wanted to be a programmer when you grew up, what would be kind of like the first, uh, tool, I guess that you would pick up. Yeah. I guess the, maybe the first thing I would do is, is look to see what's needed, right? Like what's popular, what are people hiring? Am I going in the right direction here? I think so. Yeah. So I, you know, like I think Python right now is, is probably one of the top three or five most popular programming languages. Mm -hmm. um, and if, so, you know, if, if I didn't know programming and I really wanted to get into this, I would probably just, okay, what are, what's a popular language that maybe I could, could learn. Um, that's a challenging question. You know, I think, you know, it, it's interesting. JavaScript, I think is one of the, most used languages right now because you don't have to have anything but a web browser you can just open a web browser and there's console and you can start typing javascript mm. uh, and and which is cannot be said for c++ uh, right. or, or even python uh, although you know it's fairly ubiquitous like on pretty much every mac is going to have at least python 2 installed mm. um so uh, you know so many of the tools, I, I've been in open source languages for so long that I, I wouldn't even think about having to purchase something. Like everything I use is free um, uh, from the, you know, I use the Vim uh, editor and, 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 you know, obviously I pay for my machine, but it comes with a terminal. Uh, it comes with all the GNU Unix software that's already available. Python is open source and free to use. I use free and open source databases. Uh, I'm actually appalled here at the university that they, <clears throat> we get free Oracle licenses. And so they teach Oracle here. I'm like, they're not going to be free when they leave. Uh, yeah. but that's, that's the idea. They want to hook them while mm -hmm. they're here. So um, I, I think, I think free and open source software has the, the, the ability to back to democratizing, you know, democratizing uh, computing. I mean, mm -hmm. it's free. It's out there. Uh, it does, the cost is obviously what it takes to learn it on your own, um, as opposed to, you know, I, I would prefer my students to learn how to write code in a text editor and, and not with an IDE, just mm -hmm. to learn, but, um, you know, the IDEs are out there and, and, you know, the commercial companies offer those to make things a little less painful. Um, still not sure I'm answering the question well enough. No, I, I think you, I think you did it and I, and I kind of, uh, I kind of actually, jump jump the gun because i usually stage it with if you had to start over what would be the first thing you do and then what would be the first tool that you pick up so if i'm hearing you correctly it's basically like do some market research the answer today is going to be different from three years from now and it certainly was different than in the 90s pick something popular that you can uh, you know get a job in uh or like work with people or has like a vibrant open source community like those are all the bonuses of going with like a JavaScript or Python. So I think you nailed it, man. You know, one of the, it's really interesting. Uh, uh, you brought up programming communities. <clears throat> they are typically, programming communities have been typically hostile to women. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, I should have brought some water. And so I, I think the R language has done a really amazing job of being very inclusive, especially for women. There are what are called R ladies uh, meetups. Okay. Um, and this is, uh, you know, 
biology especially is has a, a really fair representation of, of females and um and then so therefore uh, biology is becoming a biology uh, a data science and so a lot more of these women are learning programming and if you you know coming up especially in like the unix world and Perl, i'd say it's all a little rough um towards women hmm. um and it's really really nice to see these it, it, r especially has just done a fantastic job of 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 a of a encouraging very positive uh and inclusive societies uh, and so i would say if i was a woman and i wanted to do data science i'd probably learn r because i could probably find a group of ladies who i could go learn from who hmm. would be hostile to a yeah. woman yeah um wow. i you know that never that never crossed my mind hold on it's like i i gotta grab my dog here she's squeaking yeah i never i never uh contemplated that and uh Thank you for bringing that up because um, it's so important to be aware of those sort of things. One of my goals for 2020 is to be a little more uh, diverse with the male to female ratio of guests I have on the show. And it's, I've noticed in the, when, cause I've niched down into Python just as like a way to kind of be like, this is the direction I'm going, but I'm not religious about it, but it has been uh, tough to get uh, equal amounts of, of uh women guests on the show um i don't know I, I i refuse to give up but it's it's certainly something i've noticed but not to the the degree that you brought up there so yeah there's so much there's so much to contemplate when starting out so many little booby traps mm. but yeah thanks for sharing that <clears throat> and and i you know being a typical <clears throat> white dude you know i i I try not to uh, take up all the room uh, in the conversation or um, <clears throat> in the space. I think I'm going to have to go get some water. Oh, go for it, man. Yeah, we're, we're straight. Okay, I'll be right back. Sure, no problem. <clears throat> yeah, so the, the next question that I had for you was, um, why is the fastest way to profitability for a programmer best approached by treating each job like it's your own business. You had mentioned that in the pre-interview. Yeah, so, and I, I mentioned that, um, it, so growing up, I, I cut lawns to, uh, <clears throat> to make money. My parents gave me a little allowance, but you know, I wanted to buy the new cool tape player or whatever it was. So mm -hmm. uh, I cut lawns for $10 a, you know, a, a lawn, and which was good money in the 1980s. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer. And, uh, and so, and, and uh, growing up, my parents were running their own small business. They ran a, an advertising agency. And so um, just the idea of being an entrepreneur who seemed just natural. Um, my mom, after they uh, ran that business, uh, my mom started her own other small business that she still runs to this day, 30 years on. She's still been basically a sole proprietor. And uh, so I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, although I've never started my own business. But so in college, I was working for a while, supporting myself uh, by working as a waiter in a, in a restaurant. And, you know, your tips are directly tied to how good your personal service is. I mean, obviously, the, the quality of the food and, you know, the ambiance, all that plays in too. But if you're a bad waiter and you get bad service, you're going to get bad tips. 
So I was like, obviously I wanted to, if I'm gonna be working there anyway, I'd like to go home with as much money as possible. So I just like, okay, this is me. I'm Ken and I'm the waiter and this is my business right now. And uh, so, you know, I was the best possible waiter that I could be when I was there. And luckily that gig didn't last too long because I didn't really enjoy waiting tables. Mm -hmm. But you know, I got from there, I got into my first job out of college. Oddly enough, that first job was at a company that made custom DNA and peptides for biological research, for molecular biology. Hmm. And I was like, DNA? I hate DNA. I don't want to be on DNA. And I really did not enjoy that job. I didn't enjoy working there. I didn't, uh, but I still worked hard at it. Um, and, you know, my job was to answer the phone Fat, take orders off the fax machine and just process. I was just an office boy. There was nothing special about what I was hired and I was hired for a very low salary. <clears throat> and so, but I'm like, well, I'm here anyway for 40 hours a week. I might as well do something interesting, more interesting than answering the phone. What's this HTML business I've heard about? Got my boss to buy me a book, taught myself HTML, taught myself some FTP. They had a bunch of different mailing lists sitting around, you know, in these different kinds of databases and spreadsheets. Taught myself about databases. Figured out how to merge all these things and deduplicate these lists so that I could create, you know, so I didn't send the same customer five different catalogs. Uh, I came from an advertising background, so all their advertising sucked. So I was like, hey, could I take on all the advertising for the company? And they were like, sure, no one else wants to do it. So I did. I learned how to make ads. I learned how to use desktop software publishing, uh, some sort of Adobe product, I think at the time, page manager or something like that. And I created the company's catalog. I created all of our print ads. I learned how to read a rate sheet and how to place advertising. And I was like, I'm gonna be here and the next thing that I do in life is gonna be based on whatever it is I'm doing right now. And so if I just come in for 40 hours and surf the internet and answer the phone, then the next job I'm gonna be doing is going in and sitting at a desk for 40 hours a week and answering the phone. So I just figured I wanna do something more interesting with my life. And so I built up some skills and from there, I was kind of actually thinking, do I go more in the advertising direction the way my parents had? Or, uh, but then I, this opportunity came up to learn programming. I'm like, oh no, that's where I wanna be. Mm-hmm. I was around programmers and I saw what they were doing and like, this one, I remember one day we, so we had a machine that you programmed in the DNA sequence and then you poured in all the chemicals and then DNA came out a little pipette, a little tube. And mm-hmm. I was like, and then I saw this guy like writing a program to do something with the machine. I was like, okay, that's cool. I got to learn how to do that. Whatever he's doing, that's a really interesting skill. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't have the opportunity then, but I did the next time. And then, um, it wasn't long after learning how to program that that guy, Eric, who taught me, he had me out on the streets working as a consultant. I mean, it was like, you know, maybe two or three months that I had just really the bare minimum of skills, but I was able to write programs that he could charge however much money per hour to hire me out at. And we built a business around that. And it was, it was pretty good for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, if, if, you, if you just always put in the least amount of effort at, at your job, you're just going to get very little out of it and you're not going to move up. I think that it's totally up to each individual person to 
figure out how they can uh, improve themselves by improving the, the, the environment around you. So, you know, when I was working in a restaurant, I was hustling to the back to get the ice and help out my fellow waiters because they might help me when I needed, you know, to get plates to the table. And it's the same thing, you know, you're working in a company, uh, you know, I don't, it's not like, like office space, you know, like, is this good for the company kind of thing. But, but honestly, you know, if you improve things for the company and you move up and, and you make life better for your, for your coworkers, um, then those are things that you can use, put on your resume and to find that next job that you want. And you can use those people as references to say, this is the stand-up person who does good work and who's honest and uh, is going to be an asset to your organization. Yeah. It's, it's that mentality. I see um, like you were destined for great greatness. There's no way that great opportunities weren't going to come their way. Then you weren't going to seize them because you had the consistency of that mentality. And I think that's the huge nugget for me and anyone else living, listening here is, you know, if you can find that mentality and stick to it, I mean, patience and you will, you will find what you're looking for. I, I would hope. I mean, back to luck. <laughs> yeah. Bad, bad things happen uh, and you can't control them, but sometimes good things happen that you weren't expecting. And so um, that's a good thing too. You just have to be ready to capitalize on it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, I, I wanted to sneak this in here. What is your message to someone that has switched their major a few times and is having a hard time making a decision? Because... Uh, we, we should say, I, I, so I got to music school. So should I tell this story? Sure, yeah. So, you know, coming out of high school, uh, I was good. I was a good drummer. I was, uh, you know, went to honor bands and those things like that. And everybody just kind of expected that I would go to music school. And I didn't have anything better to do. I had, you know, uh, a, a girlfriend of mine, uh, uh, she, in high school, just knew, I think from as soon as she could form words that she wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, that was just her lifelong goal. And during high school, she worked at a vet clinic and she went straight to college, did what she needed to do to go straight into vet school. And she got out and she was a vet and she loved it. She loved her life. She knew what she wanted to be. And in high school, I was like, I think maybe I want to play music, but you know, it was kind of hard not to look at her and be a little jealous. Like, she knows what she wants in life. And I didn't. And I, so I got to college and I thought, yeah, let's give this a shot. And I've tried really hard for a couple of years to be a music major. I was. And I just realized that I was talented, but I didn't have the dedication to the lifestyle and the, just the commitment to, that it would take to really be a musician. And so um, I decided I just, I wasn't going to pursue that. And so Therefore, I was like, well, there's no point in getting a music degree because first off, it's really, really hard. There's probably easier degrees to get here. Um, and so I switched my major to business um, and it took one accounting class to solve that problem because I realized I'm good. I like, I can do calculus, but I could not do credit, debit, double ledger. And I'm just, it was for some reason didn't work for me. So I got out of business, I got into communications. I did that, I'm like, okay, this is probably easy, it's a fluff major. But after a year or so, I just hated it. I hated my classes. And I was like, I'm, there's no point in being miserable. And so finally I was like, you know what? I can read and write English. 
I think I'll just be an English lit major. And, uh, and actually, I really enjoyed it. I, 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 and, and I would say that, obviously, writing has been an important part of my career. Mm-hmm. So I changed major. I got an English degree. It took me five years all, all together to get out of college. And then I was prepared, really, to do basically nothing. Um, except think, right? I mean, I could write. I could communicate. I could, um, I could engage with people, which is, all, which is all, all well and good. But I had no specific skills. Um, if I were to do it over again, you know, um, it, boy, what would it have been like if I'd actually just stumbled into a CS, you know, degree? Like, because yeah. w- I was like, I, I'm this person who like swings from one extreme to the other. So I was like, well, if I'm not going to do English, uh, if I'm not going to do music, I should do business. Like, wh- where did that come from? I had, yeah. I, I'm not a businessman, you know. Um, do you think you would have been receptive? Like if, if uh, the computer science came along, do you think you would have even received it? Or did you have to kind of go through that process before you're like, oh, this is, this is definitely the way I need to go? It was nowhere on my radar. Okay. The, the, the only reason I even knew that there was a computer science um, department, and this was at the University of North Texas. I started there in 1990. And we, email was... To, you had to go to uh, this one particular building on campus where they had terminals into, uh, it was probably a VAX system or some sort of a Unix-based system. And so I had a dumb terminal where I would log in and I could do Pine. You know, Pine is not Elm. That was my email. Uh, and that's how I could send and receive emails was go to this one building, this one computer, log in. Um, and so that was the, you know, where the computer science department was, clearly, because you know, around all the computers. And... Uh, and that's the only reason I even knew that there was computer science on campus. Um, I probably would have not been receptive to it at the time. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I was a, a, a very closed minded person for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, when the reality of life, you know, set in, I get out of college and I have to support myself and I'm like, huh, being poor really stinks. What am I going to do to support myself? because I don't like what I'm doing now. Um, but you know, I, I have an idea that one day I'd, I'd like to be married. I'd like to be able to afford a house. I'd like to be able to afford children if I want, you know, and things like that. So, you know, I'm gonna have to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily for me, programming just really clicked with, uh, honestly, I, I think that the music background was, was a tremendous help to, mm-hmm. to, learning, to learning programming, um, learning structure, uh, learning loops, repetition, uh, modulation, all these kinds of things. They, I feel like basically everything that I learned from music has benefited me greatly as a programmer. Um, hmm. But I, I, I do sometimes wish that maybe I would have studied computer science in college. That could have been interesting to, um, for so long I was a self-taught hacker who only had the vaguest idea of like, what's really going on with the linked list or something like that. Uh, you know, I'm not a classically trained computer scientist. I'm really just a hacker who just kept hacking. And then during my master's, I was able to backfill a lot of information with a lot of theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still just tremendous amounts of stuff that I don't understand. I know I don't have time to understand them. I don't need to understand them. Um, I, have, I have my work cut out for me. Um, I think I went way off track there. No, no, it's all good. I've, I've heard this concept of a uh, need to nerd. 
So you kind of like fill in the gaps as you uh, need to nerd, I guess. I like that. Uh, so actually, I, I did want to touch on this. In 95, you started playing around with web technologies at the advent of the internet, Could you could argue, right? Yeah. So for, for someone starting out today, what trend do you see as the equivalent of the advent of the internet? Oh, I just have to, to, to two quick stories that are funny. Go for it, man. My, it, I think it was in 93 that one of my friends, I was go to this other computer lab to type my, my papers on a Mac 2E, little bitty, like, I don't know what, six inch screen. And he's like, there's this thing called the internet. It's amazing. Use the Mosaic browser and you can check it out. And so, yeah, there was a little icon for Mosaic on my desktop and I clicked on it and it opened up and it was an empty web page. And I was like, that's it? <laughs> that's stupid. And I closed it. I'm like, the internet sucks. Um, and, then, uh, and then the other quick story is that yesterday I got to hear Vent Surf talk. He was a graduate student and he was hooking up the Sigma 7 at UCLA to the first four nodes of, the, of ARPANET. Uh, and so he talked about his like last 50 years of basically creating the internet and TCP IP and interplanetary protocols for data transfer. And I'm like, wow. Okay. So, so what is the, ah, what is, okay. So what I can, I, I can really speak about from my field, what is going to be, I think tremendous is personalized medicine based on, based on our understanding of genomes. Mm. Uh, with the web, I don't know. I mean, WebAssembly is probably going to be awesome and stuff, but we're on, I think, this cusp of this. We've already been deluged in data in biology. Um, we don't have enough people, I think, who are really trained enough to handle the amount of data that we are going to be able to generate. Just It's to the point now in biology where it's cheaper to regenerate the data by resequencing samples than it is to store it. Oh, wow. It's it, because sequencing costs have come down so much, so much faster than Moore's law. Hmm. Uh, so when I say sequencing, I mean, you take a, an organism or uh, some sort of a community of organisms and you extract the DNA in some way. And then you take that DNA and usually we have to chop it into little short bits and then put it into a machine that then reads those little short strands and then tells us what the bases are, A, C's, D's, and G's. And that technology has gotten so fast and so cheap that we can just sequence everything all the time now. But then we end up with like terabytes, petabytes of data. And so how do you even move it around? How do you analyze it? That's where we're stuck right now in biology. And mm -hmm. I can see I don't know what other fields generate as much data. I mean, certainly astronomy and physics and other sciences out in industry. I don't know, you know, even with like web clicks and things like that, I don't know what scale of data they're dealing with. Um, but I, I, it, I think just maybe big data, no matter where it is, uh, data sets are just getting so big that um, I, I think that amazing things can be done there. But Again, I, I still say that what I see over and over again is that some project will be stuck because of a very small thing that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. I would still say that knowing how to keep your ears open and your eyes open and looking to fill in those gaps, uh, that's another way to make a really great career. Hmm. 
Would, I, could you could you argue there's some like aspect of data literacy going on there, or is that is that not not really where you're going? No, with? absolutely. I mean, yeah, data. I guess it's just data in general, and and so from the very very beginning, at my very first job when I learned, actually, one of the first things I worked on was a database, Microsoft Access. Really, at the time, fantastic product. Mm -hmm. Probably still is. I haven't used it in years. And then, like at the very at the next job, when I was learning like Visual Basic and stuff with Eric, you know, he he introduced me to DBase four, Clipper, uh, Clipper database. I mean, I'm sure this is probably. I, I see the drivers. I work with Microsoft Access pretty regularly, and I still see DBase drivers in there when you're yeah, doing I, like. <laughs> and so, I mean, just from the beginning, I've always worked with data. Uh, databases have always been central to pretty much every non-trivial application that I've written. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I guess just if, I can't see how anyone could really get along and be effective without understanding how to create and normalize data and load a database and, you know, hook up a website to it. I think that these are just basic skills that, gosh, you just go anywhere into any or nonprofit or business they're probably gonna need something like that. They're probably gonna need a database, some way to look at it, some way to load it, some way to query it, some way to write, write reports off of it. Uh, my wife works in, with nonprofits on writing grants and it's, and it's all about the data. You know, like who did you serve? Who did you, you know, what did you do with that money that you got? Um, everybody needs those, those kinds of skills in the people that they hire. Yeah. You, you just reminded me of something you were, you were talking about uh, Oracle products. I'm not trying to like knock on them or anything, but so I work in the oil and gas industry. They have loads, petabyte scale of uh, data in there. And uh, there's this joke about SAP where all the data goes in, but no data comes out. So anyway, uh, yeah, just, you know, what you're talking about fundamentally, like, can I get my data somewhere? Can I get it out? Can I visualize it? Can I read the story that it's telling me? Uh, all of this stuff is like, I mean, that's, that's what's paying my bills right now. And I think there's armies of people that are, are waking up to this for sure. And, and I think that what um, really, so I think, I think of programming as a, as, as a force multiplier, right? So mm -hmm. you, know, you have an idea and if you can write programs, then you can like implement them faster or something like that. And learning even just a little bit about statistics and machine learning was like mind blowing. So, hmm. and, you know, and really the machine learning course I took was heavy on the math, like really making us understand the linear algebra involved and the statistical models that we were using. It was not like we're gonna use two or three models out of scikit-learn and we're gonna do, uh, you know, uh, K nearest neighbors or something like that. It was really like, what is the math going on that makes this magic possible hmm. and you know just learning basic statistics t-tests anova you're like wow i mean you can learn a tremendous amount from data if you understand math hmm. um, and that's another i mean gosh i wish that i had time and energy to get three or four phds one of which would be in mathematics um, because th the answers that you can get with data by understanding how to use math is tremendous. Yeah, I'm so happy we went down this thread. It's uh, like, I feel like I could chop this piece out of, out of the podcast and people would just get their, there's money, their money worth from this. So thank you so much for your insight on that. 
uh, I wanted to dive into what is your routine to stay creative? I know you talked about this a little bit, but I just wanted to head it off. Um, so first off, I definitely love doing things that have nothing to do with computers. Um, okay. Uh, I, I have had the opportunity to, to like be a volunteer coach with a kid's cycling team. Uh, both my boys are on and that's been just tremendous. Um, I, I love to play music, even though I'm not very good at it. Um, I love cooking. I love cooking for my family. And uh, on the weekends, every Sunday, we always make a big meal. I always make something different for dessert. I like being creative. I, you know, I just go, I've decided that maybe I would try to cook every single cake that's in, you know, like a cookbook. Just try all of them. I've never, I never made an angel food cake before. So, you know, I got the pan and I made it. Um, specifically when it comes to programming, I am, and I have an obsessive personality and I know this, so, um, I try to keep it in check, but, um, the, the reason why I wrote, I actually wrote, so the tiny Python projects is 20 chapters. I actually wrote 40. Okay. And so I have enough for another book and the next 20 are actually a lot, lot harder. So mm -hmm. like. I was sitting there, I was playing uh, Scrabble, love to play Scrabble. My wife hates to play Scrabble, but I love to play it. And we were playing with some friends and I thought, wow, this is an interesting problem. Like say, what if I were to randomly draw, you know, six tiles, I think in, I think you, in, 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 uh, in Scrabble you have seven tiles, right? But you always have to play off of a tile that's there. So I think that I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to randomly draw letters out of a pool and I, and I made sure that the pool matches the, the, the bag of letters that's in the Scrabble thing. And then I'm going to take those letters and I'm going to say, if I combine these with one more letter, like pretending I'm playing this on the board, how many words could I make from these combination of, of, of tiles? Hmm. And so I basically programmed a, a, a Scrabble cheater, right? So you could write this program and you could like on the side type in the tiles that you have and then we'll go search a word dictionary and tell you all the different words of all the different links that you could possibly make from combining those tiles with one other letter. And so that's a completely useless program that no one will ever use to actually cheat at Scrabble. But it was fascinating to write it. And I right. think I obsessed on it for like two or three days. And like, I was just like, could not, we were leaving <laughs> our friend's house from playing Scrabble and I could not wait to get back to my laptop to start writing. Must cheat Scrabble. Yeah. And so, you know, I wrote it and after a couple of days, I was like, hey, that was fun. Like, I don't, that was completely a useless waste of my time. But I mean, the things that I learned about combinations and permutations and, uh, and then, you know, like I tried running it and didn't finish in like four hours. And so I profiled it and I was like, oh, I'm doing this stupid thing 400 times a second, you know? Hmm. And so, you know, just what you learn along the way by writing those useless but interesting programs. I think it was a, a, a quote I saw by Robert Cray, uh, who wrote, you know, Cray, Cray Computing. Uh, he said, the problem with programmers is that you can never tell what they're doing until it's too late. Um, and, but another quote I read said, you know, the, the, the best programs are written when the programmer is supposed to be doing something else. Hmm. So I think that if you just, you just think of something, you think of a program that would be interesting to write. Sometimes it's only 50 lines. Sometimes it's 500 lines and you just, you just do it. You just write it because that's an interesting thing to do. Um, and, and maybe, you know, in your business or in your day job, you go in and you're supposed to be working on, 
you know, some problem over here and it's a boring problem. And, and, and maybe you just see this other problem. Like no one else sees that that's a problem, but you do. And you realize, well, I could fix that. Maybe, maybe because you're drawn to that problem, it's a, you'll come up with a more creative solution than this other boring problem that you don't want to be working on. If you're actually interested in the problem that you're trying to solve, you're going to be creative. Um, I think that's what I would say about that. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I know you had mentioned creativity is not in the pre-interview. You had mentioned something along the lines of creativity is not really possible without some other aspects of your life kind of in check. And uh, so, and so I think that boils down to like probably different for everyone, but something along the lines of like nutrition, sleep, yeah. exercise, like it's just, I, I never thought about it that way. Like if you want to maximize your abilities as a programmer, uh, there's some, there's some inputs required for that. Like, uh, what, what we just talked about. So. Absolutely. I, you, you have to be excited about what you do, but you, you also have to be rested, you know, um, and, and not, uh, under the influence of, you know, substances that, that cause you to not think, well, I have to say one of the hardest things about, um, that accident that I had three years ago, where I had a concussion was, especially the first three months, I just could not think straight. Um, hmm. It was terrifying to ride in a car. Uh, the sensory overload was, was way too much. I, I actually, um, frighteningly, I can go back and see that I was making commits. To I can look at my GitHub history and I can see that I was pushing code during that time. And I'm thinking, ooh, that was a bad time to be writing code. I could not think, I could not think straight. Um, and so, wow. um, having your head on straight is important. Um, and you know, uh, and yeah, just being a whole person and being, uh, having joy and happiness in your life. Um, if you don't have that personally, then how can you bring that to what you're doing? Yeah. I love that so much. Uh, so thanks for bringing that up in the pre-interview. That was a great thread to go down. Uh, I was curious, what, what attributes do you seek in a community that's designed to move the group forward faster? Um, being supportive, you know, um, I think a lot of, especially programming communities can just be about tearing other people down. Like, you know, that code mm. sucks. It's slow. It's really amateur. Um, and so I, I think any group that wants to move fast, uh, would need to be supportive. Um, and especially helping people to learn new skills. Um, I think I'm, I'm wondering if I'm answering this question right. I, so, I think, yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it, it was something along the lines of, uh, in the pre-interview, you were mentioning how the, the best communities have uh, certain attributes. And I was just kind of, I was just kind of curious, like if you, if there was certain things that you look for or that you saw kind of function properly, because I mean, there's a, in our life, it's so finite. Our, we have to make the right choices. So if, if we could only choose to like join certain communities, maybe what should we be looking for? Uh, that was kind of the, what I was trying to like pry for there, but I, yeah, support. I mean, that's so, that's so true. I could name off a, uh, you know, a handful of places on the internet that are not friendly for. Yeah. Know. So that, that's the thing. I, I think that I just instinctively stay away from any community that smells of, of uh, elitism snobbery or misogyny um i remember 
so I, you know, I would program in Perl and that was my, 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 I would say really my first love, like the language, the first language that I really just dug, I really enjoyed working in it every day. And I, and I would say for 15 years, I just, I wouldn't look at another language. I was like, nah, Lisp maybe, but uh, no one else. Certainly I was, had no interest in getting into C and C++ and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I found the Perl community great. Um, the first, before it was called OSCon, it was the Perl conference that uh, O'Reilly would put on every year. And it was so much fun to go. And I just, I just thought it was uh, the talks and the, the things that people worked on were interesting to me. Um, when, after Perl, uh, after I kind of stopped using Perl 5 so much, I really actually tried to go into Perl 6. Uh, I think it's called Raku now. But I found uh, their IRC uh, channel to be just really welcoming really just very positive place to be. And I would ask a question, this is, you know, totally experimental new language. I'm like, well, I know how to do this over in Perl 5. How do you do that over here? And they'd be like, oh, so glad you asked. It's mm. like this, and here's this documentation, and make sure you try this. And I was, I was just kind of overwhelmed with how, how welcoming they were. Um, the Elm community, I found, has also just been, um, I think that maybe as a community, they have a code of conduct, but, um, the resources that they put out there uh, and, and the ways that they try to engage with the community just seemed very, very strong and, and uh, open and supportive. And I, and I, I was just drawn to that immediately. Mm -hmm. um, I honestly, you know, with learning Python, it's so similar to other languages that I've known that I've never had, I've never actually sought out an IRC channel for, uh, or any sort of like really interactive way to learn Python. Um, but I found it to be a pretty, pretty nice community so far. Um, but mostly I can usually just Google for what I want to do. Um, yeah. You know, uh, but I, 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 I like off the top of my head, I can't think of a, of a community that I've come across that I, uh, that I think has been negative, but maybe it's just cause I've just completely avoided them all the time. Again, yeah. I would say that R has done from the top, from the people like at R studio, like Hadley Wickham, Greg Wilson, uh, Felina, those people I feel like have gone out of their way to really reach out and make it a very welcoming community, mm. uh, especially for people who have probably felt uh, sidelined in, in the past or in other communities. And I think that's very important. Yeah, that's solid. I, th um, I think of from the public speaking sector, uh, basically, I used to do a lot of like Toastmasters and stuff. And that mm -hmm. was kind of the magic of the of the scenario was that you had this place that you could come and it was kind of like a space, a safe space to practice your skills. Yeah. And it's so critical to, you know, building that confidence and getting up to speed. So just even a launch pad, you know, find there's life's too short, seek out positive communities that are, you know, uplifting if you want to move fast. I think Absolutely. that's, that's yeah. the nugget right there. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I just have a handful of questions and I know we're up on our hour and a half. Can I, can I fire away here? Yeah, I'm in no hurry. Okay, cool, man. So I was curious if there are any interesting applications for blockchain that interest you, or do you think it's completely BS? <laughs> well, I struggled for a long time to even understand what it was. Okay. And so I, if I understand it correctly, it's a way of verifying a piece of information as it passes through different hands. Is that yeah, it's pretty much like a database, like a, everybody owns a copy of it and they're. It's like a database, but every edit is tracked and you can always 
basically go back to, you can trace back through all the edits, right? Kind yeah. of like, I, I mean, I'm thinking of like, Git, you know, with like file diffs, right? Like I can mm -hmm. go my current version back to the first version I wrote by unapplying those diffs or something like that. Um, I, yeah, there's, I don't think that I've come across anything that has made any sense to me whatsoever about why you would use blockchain. But, you know, I don't work probably in the fields that would benefit from it. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's because I don't understand it well enough. It, it has seemed to be, to me, just a huge amount of hype. But, yeah. man, I don't understand it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, well, I, I get a variety of answers with this question. One thing in the health, in, in, in the kind of like medical uh, sphere that I, I thought was kind of interesting was there's, uh, they're using blockchain for basically uh, getting, getting rid of the doctors being kind of like the holders of the patient's data. So mm -hmm. basically giving the, the patients the ability to, to go to like any doctor and having basically these private keys to be able to sign saying like, these are my medical records, they're not tampered, you can help me, you don't have to wait for the dentist or whatever to send you these things in you know, two weeks or that, that was kind of one interesting concept, but um, yeah, there's a lot of hype, I mean, that's a, yeah, that sounds really interesting. And I, I love ideas of cryptography and, uh, and keeping data safe and, and privacy. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's a really interesting application. I, I could see something like that where you would certainly want to ensure that your uh, medical records haven't been tampered with in any way in, in route from one place to another. Yeah. One thing that worries me about that whole thing, though, is like, I mean, private keys, like I've, I've had little scenario snafus with, you know, my private keys with GitHub. And it's like, would I want to be like riding on this thing? You know, like we've got to figure that out. So it's not so precarious. And for the average Joe, I, I think it's just too much. So that, that's kind of my unsolicited uh, yeah. two cents on that. But. Are you saying that you accidentally put your private keys into GitHub? No, uh, like, like, like I, I had them. And then I deleted them for whatever reason, yeah. or I had two private keys and I deleted the wrong one. Right. That, that just happened the other day. Yeah. And, uh, I was just like, I was like, oh, it was, I mean, it was nothing that was a game changer. I just got the admin to right. put my new private key on. But, you know, could you imagine not having that? Yeah. And, and so like, I feel bad, like the first day of class, I have to take these uh, total novice people who never done any programming and I have to take like the Windows people. I'm like, okay, you're now installing Linux on top of your computer. And now you have to go create a GitHub account. And now you have to create an SSH key. And I need you to take your private key, I mean, your public key, and put it into this, you know. And so they're like, what, what, what are we doing? I'm like, please, just trust me. In right. like two months, you'll understand what we're doing. So <laughs> right now, you'll just have to trust me. You have to create a private, public private key pair. Um, and it's, yeah, trying to explain this to the average layperson. Because it took me, I'm sure, 50 times of copying my public key to another machine before I finally understood what was, you know, under, what was happening here. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so three tips for Python programmers to monetize their skills. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, or as well, many tips as you want, I guess. Well, like, like I said, I've done a bad job because I give away uh, my code. So mm -hmm. I would say the first thing is don't give away your code. Uh, charge people for it. Right. Uh, uh, 
one could argue that you're monetizing your Python skills right now, though, like the way the the role that you play in research and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so I, I make a living by by writing probably at least 50 percent Python um, and, and a handful of other languages. Um, yeah, I guess the first thing is if, if, if someone were we're not currently employed as a programmer, that would be the first thing I would say, like try to find a job as a programmer because um, first off, they generally pay well and they're generally stable, which is great. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's no point in denying that it's nice to have a good salary. It's nice to be able to live in a nice house. Um, uh, so, uh, and I think probably most programming jobs are probably interesting. I'm, they may be not as interesting as my job where I get to like work at a research institute and ride my bike to school every day. Um, but uh, I would, so I would get a job programming and then, or start consulting. Uh, and I did a little bit of consulting on the side uh, years ago. Uh, and, and that's fun too, because you can just work on small jobs for a little while for somebody. And sometimes those can lead to bigger jobs. Um, but three jobs, three tips, I'm not doing so well. Um, yeah, well, first off, I come from an advertising background, so you have to have a cool name and a cool logo. Um, so, uh, you know, come up with, the, my first consulting company was called uh, Grasshopper consulting uh, nice. after uh, Kung Fu. You remember that show Kung Fu from a long time ago? And, I, I, I think I understand the concept, but I don't recall the show. Grasshopper was a, the, he was a, he was learning Kung Fu from this master and his master would call him, ah, Grasshopper. And he would, you know, so we were, it was all this kind of a Buddhist Eastern thing that we were going for. Yeah. Uh, so I, no, I, I'm sorry. I don't think I have good tips for how to make money. Doing <laughs> Maybe write a book. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I certainly uh, heard some here. So, you know, get out there into these communities. If you want to grow, keep an open mind, like uh, all these opportunities that have been provided to you. They, you know, like just, just the whole mentality that you had. We, we probably answered that question just through the course of this, through the course of this show. So I, we, we did good. We did good on that one. Um, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Oh boy. You should have asked me that in the pre-interview. So I would have been, <laughs> uh, well now I'm thinking about, was it is in Hamlet when the his father's giving him all this advice, never a borrower or a lender be. Um, hmm. uh, I, honestly, I, I think it, it's not a novel piece of advice that my grandfather gave me. But my, I remember it was my senior year in high school. And he said, you know, Ken, all you need in life is three things. Something to do, something to look forward to, and someone to love. And, uh, that's you know, cool. that's, not, that's not novel. He didn't make it up. I like it. Yeah. It's, uh, I think that, that that really stuck with me. Um, I think that I was definitely interested in, in falling in love and, and, and in having a stable relationship. And I've been fortunate to, uh, uh, boy, let's see, what are we up to? I think 24 years of marriage now coming up uh, with my wow. wife. I've been with her for almost 30 years. So um, I have something to do that I find is really interesting. I really enjoy coming to work every day. And I have things that I look forward to doing both personally with my children and my wife and also professionally. Um, so 
I think that's it. I think, I think that you need to be motivated in life. What are you doing right now that you like? What do you want to be doing? And who are you doing it with? Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, most important non-technical book to read in 2020. Oh, I read a lot of non-technical books that, oh, uh, gosh. It can be like a handful. Uh, I mean, it's so important to read fiction. Uh, but do I need to teach, do I need to choose something top, like really recent? I mean, it can, I've, I've seriously gotten so, it, it, it could be like literally what's, whatever's on the forefront of your mind, those, that's the, that's the golden one right there. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm totally unprepared for this now because uh, I, I have been, I've been reading a lot about uh, meditation and spirituality. I think. I think it's important to be in a good headspace, uh, no matter what you do. Um, I'm also like, I love, for some reason, I'm really into the early history of computers and computer science and kind of like understanding how they made the, the leap from telegraphs to like digital information. Hmm. Um, for some reason, trying to understand what they were doing in the early days with computers and computer science and creating these things. Like I love the book Cryptonomicon by uh, Neil Stevenson, where he, uh, it incorporates Alan Turing and the creating of the first machines to like crack the enigma. Uh, for some reason, those, those kinds of things that make me just kind of in awe of, of what we get to use every day, the power of like, I'm looking at my laptop and this is orders of magnitude more powerful than what they used to land people on the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and have you ever looked at that source code? Mm -mm. Uh, it's in GitHub now. You can look at the original control source code. Okay. And I can't even begin to understand what these things do. Um, oh. And yet they worked and they were flawless. Um, boy, I really went off track. No, that, I, I, I think that's exactly what I'm looking for. It's, uh, you know, just something, something that you really enjoy kind of gives the audience some insight into your personality and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually always secretly hunting for like the next book to pick up. So I'm, I'm always asking everybody what's, you know, what's the most important book to read in 2020. Cool. Well, thanks. Well, it's probably the most important. It's like, yeah. So yeah. it's not like something Somerset mom, right? Just go read good literature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that's great. Uh, I, th I think we did a good job with that one. Uh, what are some best or some programming languages to kind of consider learning in 2020? One of them is probably an easy one to. Well, certainly, uh, certainly Python. Uh, yeah, I'll throw that. And and Python three eight has really added a lot of really interesting things. Yeah. Especially within type hints, which they are taking from strongly statically typed languages like Rust, which is completely my darling right now. Okay. Uh, it my maybe not second book, but maybe my third book that I want to write is Tiny Rust Projects. Okay. The same idea, but introducing the idea of Rust to, obviously it really couldn't be a beginner, beginner programmer, but maybe you've programmed in Python for a couple of years and you want to know what you can do in, in Rust. It's like, it took me a couple of weeks to sit down with, you know, the two, three inch thick book, reading it, writing little programs over and over again before I finally understood even just the basics of that language. But now that I kind of got over that initial hump, I think it's, a tremendous language. 
Hmm. I've already mentioned Elm. If you haven't looked at Elm, I think it is the only sane way to create uh, like an interactive user interface that's you know Java based, JavaScript based. Okay. Uh, I couldn't when when we needed to, we decided we would rewrite iMicro from being this Perl five modulicious, very Web one point kind of monolithic infrastructure, and we wanted to split it into a front end and a back end. And we chose Node.js for the back end. I think JavaScript is a truly horrific language, but uh, it is useful. It is used. Um, it is fast and very powerful, but um, it scares the, the lights out of me. Uh, I really don't like using it. But we do use that on the back end and the front end. I did not want to write in JavaScript, but you have. But I mean, that's what web 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 uh, web browsers run. So had JavaScript had to be written, but we just chose to write it by using Elm that then compiles our JavaScript. Mm. Uh, and so I think that there's no way that Matt and I could have done the work that we've done in the last few years uh, without using Elm. It's basically like having a second or maybe even third programmer working with you keeping you from making a lot of mistakes. Uh, I still love Haskell, although I've never ever written anything useful in it at all. But I still keep reading books about it and thinking that one day I'll figure it out. Um, I I've keep hearing about like, is it called Kotlin or Kotlin? Kotlin, okay. It's like a Java type deal, right? Is it? I I'm not sure, but like somebody told me that their business is moving toward that and I should really be looking at it. I have to say, I took a look at Go and I, I hated it. Um, and I have utmost respect for Rob Pike um, and, and what his, his work that he's done, but I just did not like Go at all. Uh, would not want to be using that. Um, and uh, what are the other really hot languages? Like in, in the f purely functional realm, I mean, I think it's Idris, people are talking about, Aga, Aga. Scale, scale I've heard is kind of for, uh data science type things yeah and i see a lot of businesses running on scala scala i think scala. i say scala. Yeah. i think it's named after la scala in milan uh, and um it, that's a like a hybrid functional object-oriented language that runs on the jvm right I've, I've just seen it in some data science uh tracks or like career tracks yeah i tried learning it uh, for a little bit and i, I was underwhelmed um, okay. It was a few years ago. It was probably worth looking at again. I think it's really improved. But like people I follow on Twitter who are big into Scala uh, are much bigger into really, I think, Haskell and okay. often kind of hold their nose when they have to go back to Scala code bases. So, but you know, I speak really from a, a standpoint of ignorance. Fair enough. And I mean, just getting back to the whole conversation of the right tools for the job, I mean, you can very easily accomplish like, you know, 90 nine or very close to a hundred percent of your mission, you know, with your chosen tools and mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's what works. So, yeah. and I, and I love the comment, uh, JavaScript is, uh, uh, horrific and it's prolific. Yes. Yeah. It, that, that's very good. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that's all I got for you here. I want to hear your call to action. Where can people go, uh, connect with you? I know you got the book coming out. We're going to be promoting that. So uh, the floor is yours. What, is, what, what do we want to leave them with? Uh, you know, I, I hurriedly threw up uh, kyclark.us for, you know, our personal website. 
Um, mostly, I would like to be known by my code, which is at github.com slash kyclark. I'm at kycl4rk on Twitter. I was just a little slow in getting that handle. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm excited to be publishing this book with Manning. So you can go to manning.com and find Tiny Python projects. Um, yeah. All the code for that, though, is in my personal GitHub repository. So, and it's free, it's open source. Um, you can, the whole idea of the book is that you are given a test suite and in, the, in each of the directories is a test suite and, and a basic uh, spec document that tells you how the program should work. And then there's, there's tools to help you learn how to write a program well with documentation. And then you use the test suite to write the program. And then there's the solution there too. There's a solution because there's many ways to creatively write a program. So I give you my solution. In fact, sometimes I give you seven or eight or nine different solutions because it's fun. It's fun to play with the language. So you can find all, all that code for free and you can work through the exercises on your own. Um, the detailed explanation of what's going on and why I write the way I write and how you can hopefully move along faster is, is in the book. I would hope that you would buy the book. I would appreciate that. Uh, but you can certainly work through the, the code examples on your own github.com slash kyclark. Excellent. Yeah, we'll make sure they got all the links. And uh, I think there's even, they, they gave me a uh, profitable Python code for them to use. So we'll be promoting that. I'm exciting to see, or I'm excited to see that that book come to fruition. The whole like testing angle is really cool. So I, I hope so. I hope that people embrace this. And I think it'll be up. I honestly, I had a student actually say to me today, thank you for the book. This is the first time that I've ever, you know, I've studied Python more than once with people. And this is the first time I've understood it. Hmm. So I really hope that this leads to people deeply understanding the language and not just being able to parrot um, some, you know, program that they type out of a book. Yeah. Much more than that. Yeah, no, that that's really cool. And uh, that's what that's, that's what we're looking for is these breakthrough moments with uh, uh, on a big scale. So cool. I, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, it's an honor to have this uh, opportunity to interview you. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yes, this this was so much fun. Cool. Thank you, Ben.